Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. So a couple of months ago, uh, Janelle and I got to the final season of the show we had been watching, and uh, we used the inner, inner library loan to get the, the DVD discs, um, borrow them. And so we put the first disc in, and we watch, and we start watching, and it's like, I feel so lost. What is going on? And like, we watch one episode, we watch the next episode, we're like, this is so confusing. It's like putting us right down in the middle of, like, the story. And we were talking about it. I was like, you know what? I bet it's, like, one of those more artistically done shows where, like, they just drop you right in the middle of the action, and then later they're going to start filling in all the stuff that led to this, and then they're going to move forward. Like, I bet that's what's going to happen. So uh, we take out the first disc we've watched. We go to put the second one in. We realize that whoever borrowed the DVD last had swapped the pockets for the discs well, that makes more sense. Uh, but actually, it got worse than that. We, we watched disc one second, and then disc three last, and we got to the season finale. We watched the season finale. We're like, I still feel like there are characters we didn't even know, and that like we're missing some pieces. And we find out that for whatever reason, the makers of the show decided to give their final season in two parts. And we only got the second part of the final season, So we missed the whole first half of the final season and then jumped in on the second disc of, yeah, so it was all over the place. And we got so frustrated and annoyed with the situation that we never have gone back and watched those, the first half of the final season that we missed out on. Because we already saw the finale now, like we know where it ends. And uh, so, yeah, confusing and frustrating. The idea behind today's message is that I don't want what happened for us with that show to happen to you and the story of the book of Exodus. Because we as a church are about to jump in to uh, what will probably take us around two and a half, maybe even three months to work through the book of Exodus together. Uh, But many of you know Exodus is the second book of the Bible, not the first book. And so there's a danger that if we just jump in and start reading verses, some of you are like, whoa, 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 wait, what is going on? This doesn't make any sense. Confusion and frustration. And so uh, today is like catching up. It's going to be a flyby overview of all the things that happen in Genesis that sets up what happens in Exodus. We're also going to do some other things. I want to share a little bit about why we're doing a series on Exodus in the first place. Uh, As I've been like getting all excited and nerding out on the book of Exodus, I've had a couple of people be like, but but why? Why Exodus? (laughs) You know, not quite as enthusiastic as I am about it. So I want to share uh, why I believe this will be a great study for us and uh, why it is we're going to spend some time working through the book of Exodus. Uh, Number one reason that's not even on these slides is that uh, while Alan was here, uh, he really helped us as a church community work through some books together, and we studied in depth a bunch of different books of the Bible. We worked through Ephesians and 1 John and even Isaiah and, and some of the minor prophets 
But at least since I was a part of Creekside, we've never worked through Exodus. And so the first reason is this is a really important book. And at least in the last 13 years, we've never taken time as a church community just to work through it. And so I'm excited to do it for that reason, but also because it's such an important book for setting up certain concepts that are there throughout the rest of Scripture. Let me give you a quote that will help you understand this a little more. Uh, This is from a a scholar named Christopher J. H. Wright. He says, uh, if you would ask a devout Israelite in the Old Testament period, are you redeemed? The answer would have been a most definite yes. And if you'd ask, how do you know you're redeemed? You would be taken aside to sit down somewhere while your friend recounted a long and exciting story, the story of Exodus. See, this is so easy for us to miss on the other side of the cross, but for Israelites in the Old Testament, Exodus records the salvation event of the Old Testament. In fact, it's the first time in Scripture we come across this word, salvation. You don't find it in Genesis, but it comes up a lot in Exodus. Same thing with the word redemption. It doesn't come up in Genesis. It comes up all over the place in the book of Exodus. And you also get these other things that are so important. Exodus is when God reveals his name. Moses says, okay, you want me to go, but, but who should I say sent me? God says, say, I am has sent you, Yahweh in Hebrew. It's where you find out God's name. This is where God reveals his will and the Ten Commandments. This is where we find out that God wants to dwell with his people and sets up this tabernacle, which will later be the model for making the temple the center of worship for Old Testament Israel. And so it sets up so many things that have to follow. And it'll be really difficult to understand the Old Testament for you if you don't understand this book. But even more important than all of that, is that Exodus, more than almost any other theme, is used to explain what Jesus came to do. Listen to this from Luke chapter 9. This is a story about the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus brought some of his closest disciples and friends and up on this mountain, and some crazy stuff happened. And I won't explain all of that, because some of it I don't understand. Um, But listen to this. It says, about eight days after this conversation, Jesus took along Peter, John, and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Moses, the second most important character in the book of Exodus, after God. And they appeared in glory and were speaking to Jesus of his departure. In the original language, you know what that word is? It's Exodus. Moses is speaking to Jesus about his Exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You keep turning the pages. What happens in Jerusalem? Jesus is falsely accused. He's convicted. He's crucified. He dies, and three days later, he rises again. Jesus' exodus is a shorthand way of saying his, his work of salvation. And so I believe that the better we understand the book of Exodus and how an Old Testament Israelite would have understood salvation, the more deeply we'll be able to comprehend the message of the cross and the resurrection and what all of that means for us. So that's why we're going to study the book of Exodus together over the next few months. And again, though, we don't want to jump into disc two. (laughs) 
so let's get a, dis, uh, a little recap of what happened in the book of Genesis. And Genesis is all about beginnings. And if you have your Bible and you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to do so. We're just going to be flipping pages all the way through Genesis. So Genesis 1-1, right at the very beginning, it's a great summary of what happens in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew poetic way of saying things, when they say the heavens and the earth, they don't just mean the stuff up there and the stuff down there. They also mean everything in between. It's like saying A to Z, right? He created everything you see when you look up and everything you see when you look down and everything in between. God created the heavens and the earth. And near the end of this creative work, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God did it. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. Male and female created in the image of God and blessed and given the ability and the calling, the commission to rule over the world. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, have babies, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Now, this is, this is so important to understand the, what happens right here at the start of the story. God makes this huge, beautiful world, this beautiful universe. He says, hey, humans, I'm not going to keep doing things myself. I'm giving you the keys to creation. Here you go. Have fun. Take it for a spin. Rule over it. Do your thing. I'm going to step back. I'm going to let you step forward. Because we're going to see this happen again and again through the story. God stepping back and asking humans to step forward. And God saw all of this. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. So God gives us the keys to creation, and then we crash the car, <laughs> right? Genesis 1 is a good creation. Genesis chapter 3 records what we call the fall, the breaking, um, yeah, the breaking down, the perversion of what God intended to happen. So it says this, that the woman saw that the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God had said, don't eat from the fruit of that tree. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is a recording. I'm trying to capture a picture of how before this they were innocent and now they're guilty, right? Their eyes are open and now they realize they've done wrong. They have knowledge of good and evil and they know that they are guilty of evil. And so they start hiding from each other, creating barriers. You keep reading, they start blaming God for things. It's your fault, God. You gave me the woman. <laughs> it's the serpent's fault. It's not mine. And God goes on to tell them about the consequences of this. And it's basically that everything's broken now. Relationship between God and humans, humans and each other, and the whole created world. It's all broken. And this just continues. And Genesis 6 says this. 
When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth. So they've multiplied, they've spread out, but instead of spreading God's goodness, they are spreading wickedness. When God saw this and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. But Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. And this sets up the story, the famous story that if you grew up in church, you know the story very well, Noah and the ark. God calls him to build this boat and to save the animals. And it's so interesting because I don't know why we call it a children's story because basically everyone and everything dies. (laughs) Uh, It's a pretty gruesome story, actually. But there's this undercurrent of grace that God would totally be justified in just starting over. Let's just get rid of humans altogether because they're kind of failing at their calling. But he doesn't. He works through a person, Noah, to work in some ways to save the world, to continue this project forward. And afterwards, he makes a promise or a covenant with them. God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by flood waters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the whole earth. So, what's going on? God made a good world, humans broke it. God says, oh, I want to fix it. I'll use a man, Noah. Time goes on. Keep reading. Things get bad again. God's like, I want to do something. I want to fix it. And he keeps not stepping in himself, but instead of working through humans. And what what to me sounds so strange is actually pretty consistent with the story so far, right? It's like, "I, I want to bring healing to the world. Here's a random guy, Abram. The Lord God said to Abraham, go from your land. Leave your home, your relatives, and your father's house, and go to the land I will show you. Trust me. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Says, I want to work for healing? Pick a guy. It's like what he keeps doing. This time, Abram, Abram, leave your home, go to land, I'll show you. And this is so important to see. God is not playing favorites here. He's just doing what he has already set up to do. He's working through humans, right? He gave us the keys, and he's not going to just rip them back. He's going to keep working through humans. He's also not playing favorites because look at the conclusion. How many peoples on earth will be blessed through Abram and his family? All peoples. The purpose is not just like to play favorites and bless this guy and play favorites. No, the purpose is to bless him, to be a blessing to others. It's the original calling, once again, out there, right? Fill the earth with my goodness. So Abram, who becomes Abraham, what's he like? You guys know the story. 
Good guy, bad guy, medium guy. Good guy, okay. Sometimes. What are some of the things he messes up? Yeah. He lies about his wife, says, oh, she's my sister. What else does he do that's wrong? Does anyone remember any other stories? Say it louder. Yeah, has a child with another woman. God's taking too long. I'm going to take this into my own hands. Marry someone else. Any other stories come to mind? This is so strange. And as, as you keep reading Genesis, this doesn't, this doesn't change. The Bible is so honest about its heroes, right? Abraham, the father of faith, the patriarch. God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Isaac, his son, and Rebekah, his wife, they play favorites. They get it wrong. And Jacob gets it really wrong, right? He, he steals his brother's blessing. You know how he steals it? By deceiving his blind old-aged dad, right? Like, and this is one of the heroes of the story. And what's amazing to me, and I think this is kind of like a, a proof of the Bible's genuineness personally, is like, no one does this. No one is that honest about their heroes and how messed up they are. Like, I remember growing up in school and uh, learning about Abraham Lincoln, who never told a lie, and as I got older, I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> and even if he did, like, how would you even know that? Like, <laughs> but what is that? It's this tendency we have as humans to be like, oh, here's a hero figure, right? And whitewash all their bad things, right? Kind of shine them up and make them look better than they actually were. And then you read scripture. It's like Abraham, the father of faith, slept with another woman, lied about his wife, <laughs> What is going on? I think it's actually a very beautiful truth because what's going on is that I think these heroes of the faith are actually acting as foils for the goodness of God. What I mean by that, they're contrast. Are they good? Not really. But the fact that they're not good, all their ugliness actually just serves to highlight God's greatness and God's beauty and how amazingly powerful he is that he can somehow still work through them. So uh, a couple years ago, Janelle and I were uh, painting our attic bedroom. And so we start painting, and we're using this color white that we've used all over our house at this point um, called Snowfall White from Home Depot because paints have to have names, right? Pretty names. So Snowfall White, we're putting on our Snowfall White. Or we run out of paint. I'm like, okay. I go to Home Depot, get another can of paint, we start putting it on the walls. I mean, they look the same in the can. They're both white, clearly. Start putting it on the walls. We're like, this looks different. What's going on? It looks like yellower. Like, oh, maybe it just dries a different color. And we like paint the rest of the room. And it doesn't dry a different color. <laughs> it's like, oh, what is going on? And we finally look at the cans and the lids and we find out I bought... The, the original color was Snowfall White, and this was Snowfall, which is a different color than Snowfall White, because thank you, Home Depot, for naming your colors. Uh, so we had to go back and buy Snowfall White and repaint everything we had just painted. Now, if you had put 
that snowfall white up over there and that snowfall up over there across from each other, I bet hardly anyone here would see a difference if they're on different walls. But you put them right next to each other and it's very clear. What the Bible is doing, it's putting Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right next to God. So you see clearly who the real hero of the story is. It's God. He's the real hero and how good he is. They can work even through these messed up humans. And so it continues like this. And and it's such a surprising story, right? God says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you and I'm going to turn you into a nation. Genesis 21 records the fulfillment of this promise, but it looks different than I would have expected. Abraham and Sarah finally give birth to one son when Abraham's 100 years old. This nation-building thing is going to take a long time, right? This is going to be a slow work of it, and yet this is God's plan. And it continues. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is barren. Isaac prays for her, and she has twins. They're her only two kids, Jacob and Esau. And uh, they fight against each other like we talked about. Jacob is like a pretty terrible character for a lot of the story. And yet he is the recipient of this promise. Jacob has 12 sons. And then he too plays favorites. What's the name of his favorite? Come on, kids. You know, Joseph, right? So Joseph, the favorite. And the brothers are so angry at him for being the favorite one, but also for having these dreams where he's so important and we're all going to bow down to you, that they decide to kill him, right? It's a really healthy family. They decide they're going to kill him, and they're like, okay, well, maybe not. We won't kill him. We're not that mean. We'll sell him into slavery. So they sell their brother into slavery. And long story short, over many years, he rises through their ranks in Egypt. And he finds out that there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And he advises Pharaoh to save up a bunch of grain during the seven years of plenty so that they'll have enough during the years of famine. And they do that. And the years of famine starts. And everyone in that whole region is experiencing famine, like they don't have enough food. And so everyone's going to Egypt because there's food there. There's grain there to buy. And Joseph's brothers come too. And are expecting to have to talk to Pharaoh, and instead they find their brother. And Joseph doesn't take vengeance out on them. He doesn't revenge himself on them. He forgives them. And the book of Genesis ends with the death of Jacob, who's become renamed Israel. And the brothers are freaking out because they're like, maybe Joseph was just being nice while dad was alive. Maybe now he's going to get his vengeance on us. And so some of the last verses of Genesis are this conversation between Joseph and his brothers. And Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, it's not my place to judge or condemn you. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I'll take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Uh, I've become convinced that Genesis 50, 20, verse 20 here, contains a key for understanding the book of Genesis as a whole. That humans keep planning evil 
And God keeps somehow turning around for good. That's what happened with Abraham. It's happened with Isaac, with Jacob, now with Joseph's brothers. And it's such a weird story, isn't it? This is how God's going to save the world. (laughs) It's going to take a while, and I'm not convinced we're going to get there. (laughs) So, this is disc one, okay? And as you're getting ready to turn the page from Genesis 50 to Exodus chapter one, here is what you should be expecting if you've understood the book of Genesis and everything that's happened. And indeed, these are things that we will find in the book of Exodus, God said, I'm going to bless you and turn you into a nation. We should turn the page expecting that this family, who has become 70 people, will get bigger and grow into a nation. That's what we're looking for. We're also expecting some conflict because the promised land is up north in the area we call now Israel, what was then Canaan. And right now they're in Egypt. How are they going to get there? So we're looking for this family to become a nation. We're, we're asking the question, how is this nation going to get home? We should also be expecting this to go really slow. Right. God says, Abram, I'm going to work through you to fix the world, through making you a nation. One son when you're 100 years old. Right. This thing's going to move slowly more slowly than I would think it should. This nation has a calling. They're supposed to not just be a blessing or be blessed by God, but to be a blessing to others. We should also be expecting, if you've been paying attention to how that's looked so far, that this nation will probably fail at that calling a lot. And somehow, we should be expecting that God will still somehow work through their evil that they plan to bring good out of it. Does that make sense? These are expectations as we turn to Exodus. And this is what we're going to find as we explore this book. Now, another note uh, as we turn to Exodus, uh, I think it's important to understand how this book fits into the overall story of the Bible. And so I've spoken about this before, but some of you, this might be new. Um, I have a visual way of understanding the story of the Bible The big storyline of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, and glorification, or or restoration. And this is my way of uh, visualizing this. If you look at this, uh, higher on this means better, like closer to God's will, and lower means worse, more messed up, okay? So we have, start off really good, right? This is creation, Genesis 1-1. Then we have Genesis 3. What's that? It's the fall. Creation fall, things get really, really bad. Now, what's interesting is redemption comes in actually three parts. The next chapter of the story is redemption, and the first chapter of redemption is the story of Israel. God's calling to work through a man, his family, which becomes a nation, to be blessed and to be a blessing. And this is supposed to show that Israel sometimes gets that right and most of the time gets it wrong. And if you read through the whole, tes- whole Old Testament with this in mind, you realize like, it's like expectation, hope, disappointment. <laughs> expectation, hope, maybe David. Then David and Bathsheba. 
whole Old Testament over and over again. Expectation, hope. Maybe God's going to fix the world through this person or this way of doing things, and it doesn't ever work out. All the way through the end. At the end, the prophets are saying, no, God's still going to do it. He's going to work through, his, through one of David's descendants. The end. And the New Testament picks up this story. So redemption chapter 2 is Jesus. And what Jesus does is he takes this whole story on himself, the story of Israel. He, like the nation of Israel, wanders in the wilderness. And like them, is tested in the wilderness. But unlike them, he doesn't fail the test. He stays faithful to God. He, like Moses, goes up on the mountain. Moses receives the Ten Commandments, God's will, his law. And he, like Moses, goes up on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and gives God's authoritative teaching. And over and over again, you see all these ways that Jesus is taking this whole story upon himself and redoing it. Why? Because God has given humans the keys. And he's not going to just take them back. He's going to work through a human. So God becomes human to take this story upon himself, culminating in Jesus' death and resurrection. What happens next is so weird, but so expected if you've been following along. What happens next is Jesus said, I'm with you, church, always to the end of the age. And then he leaves. (laughs) He says, you go make disciples of all nations. What? Why don't you just keep doing it? It's not the way God works. And you'd know that if you're paying attention, right? He works through people. It says, you, church, continue my work. So redemption chapter one, Israel. Redemption chapter two, Jesus. Redemption, redemption chapter three is the church working to continue Jesus' work in the world until he returns. And when Jesus returns for his second coming, he will finish his work. And this is new creation or glorification or restoration. Now, so... If this is the whole story of the Bible, Genesis 1 is about this and this and maybe like up here and down here. Exodus is like right there, okay? That's what we're looking at. This is where we are in the story. But here's why this is important. Because remember, this whole story, Jesus is going to take on himself and redo. And so the better you understand Exodus, the better I believe you'll understand Jesus and the fullness of redemption. So, that is Exodus. That's what we're going to do. Application. I want to encourage you and challenge you to let this story shape your story. Let the story shape your story. I was looking uh, at some research on the power of narrative or stories in our lives. And actually, it's fascinating because neuroscientists have become fascinated with this topic. And so they've hooked people's brains up to machines and had someone like tell a story and looked at what's going on. That's what they say. They say, as you hear a story unfold, your brain waves actually start to synchronize with those of the storyteller. Uh, this is from Yuri Hassan, the professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. Uh, when he and his research team recorded the brain activity in two people, as one person told the story and the other listened, they found that the greater the listener's comprehension, the more closely the brainwave patterns mirrored 
those of the storyteller. Brain regions that do complex information processing seem to be engaged, Hassan explains. And he says, it's as though I'm trying to make your brain similar to mine in areas that really capture the meaning, the situation, the schema, the context of the world. So here's the cool thing. I believe this is uh, inspired. But in some ways, the ultimate author of Scripture is God himself. It's his story. And what neuroscience tells us is that if we spend time reflecting on the story, living with it, that what will happen is our brains will start to line up with his. We want to synchronize our minds with the mind of God. The stories are powerful. So let this story shape your story. A few years ago, my grandma died, and at the memorial service, everyone's sharing memories, and uh, I heard a memory that I had never heard before. Janelle had to remind me of this because um, it hadn't come to mind for this, but it's such a cool and powerful story, I think. Uh, so my biological grandfather died when my dad was only 10 years old. My biological grandpa was 28 years old when he died. My grandmother at the time had four boys. My dad was the oldest. He was 10 years old, and they went down from there. And so my grandma's not in a good situation. But one of the people told this story at the memorial service that after that happened, my grandma took her boys into a room, closed the door, and said, boys, we're in a valley right now. But God is on the other side of the valley and he's going to help us walk through this and make it across and make it through this. And her explaining that and sharing with him, this is where we are in the story. We are in the valley. But God's with us and he's going to help us get through it. It shaped how those boys, my dad included, responded to the tragic loss of their dad. It gave them hope. It gave them a sense of purpose in this time and comfort. And they did make it through that time. And then they told that story to their kids and passed it on. Stories shape us. This story has the power to shape you. Who are you? What is your identity? you think about it, when you ask someone that, they almost always tell their story. Who are you? If you're a follower of Jesus, here's a piece of your story, that you once were enslaved to sin. And God intervened through his mediator, Jesus, and he set you free from an oppressive ruler, the prince of darkness. And he broke the chains of slavery And he took you out of that land and into a new land, the promised land. And now he dwells with you through his spirit. The more you recall that story, the more it has the power to shape you. Let this story shape your story. We also want to celebrate this story. A bunch of the book of Exodus is not just about what happened, 
but actually instructions about how to make sure you keep celebrating what happened for future generations. This is how you're supposed to celebrate Passover. Make sure your kids know this. And the Jewish people did that. They celebrated Passover every single year. And we know Jesus growing up would have celebrated Passover every year. And it was the events of Passover that Jesus thought were most fitting to explain his upcoming death and resurrection. So the night before he was betrayed, he took the events of Passover and made them about himself. He filled them full of meaning. And so we're going to celebrate the story as we work through the book of Exodus. We're going to celebrate it by engaging in the Lord's Supper, probably more than once, but at least today. And again, uh, right before Easter. And then share the story with others. <clears throat> what was the original calling? Do you remember? I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the world. And the most amazing thing to me about Exodus is the, the double-sided nature of it. Okay? On the one hand, it's judgment against the Egyptians, right? You shouldn't have been oppressing those Israelites. We're gonna, God's going to judge you. At the same time, it's actually for the Egyptians. Exodus 12, 38 says that when the people left Egypt after the events of Passover, a mixed crowd also went up with them. What does that mean? It means not just Israelites left Egypt. Some Egyptians left Egypt too. They witnessed the plagues. They were like, the gods we did worship are nothing. This God. I'm going with them. And here's to me the most convicting thing. As you read the book of Exodus, along with the fulfillment in Jesus and what he explained, you realize that it's not only the case that we're kind of like the Israelites in some ways, we were enslaved to sin and he came to set us free, but even more so, it's like Jesus is the one faithful Israelite and we're all Egyptians. We're the oppressors. We're guilty. And Jesus says, a mixed multitude can come with me. Even though you were the oppressor, the blood of the lamb can cover you too. And you can come out of that land and change sides and join me. And so we are going to take Lord's Supper in a moment. But before we do that, uh, I want you to engage with this video. It's kind of an artistic exploration of this book and what it has to teach us. And as we watch, I just want you to consider everything we've talked about, but then also, what does this meal mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the bread of life? So enjoy this together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. At this point in the message, we watched a video provided by SpokenGospel.com, and I didn't want to reproduce the audio of the video here because the video itself is very moving. So I will include a link to that video in the description of today's podcast episode. And then after the video, um, we shared Lord's Supper together. And so we'll cut now forward to the sharing of the verses and participating in Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul looks back to both the original Passover, but then also especially to how Jesus fulfilled it. In verse 23, he writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. 
on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That means the new agreement, the new basis for relationship, the new set of promises which will bind us together. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we thank you together for your body, which was broken for us, your blood shed for us, the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb that would allow death to pass over us. We pray that we would not take this amazing gift for granted. We thank you that through you, Jesus, we can be restored to the Father experience forgiveness of sins and be given a new life that starts now and lasts forever. God, I pray for our church community as we study this important book together, that you would give us not only understanding, but that it really would shape us as people and as followers of you, and that the more we understand it, the better we would appreciate Jesus for what we just celebrated together. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.